Welcome back, everybody. This is Dr. Scott with Dr. Shiloh. The lovely, dangerous, <laughs> and gorgeous. I, I never know if you're going to break. And I'm like, oh, do I say it? Do I wait for all the compliments? <laughs> Come bring them my way. We both deserve compliments. You let me love we you. Both we both deserve them deserve today. Because <laughs> today's a big day. It is a huge day. This is a huge day. And the, the reason is because this is episode number 100, wild. which is mind boggling to me. So weird to hit that number. Did you ever think that we would get this many? You know, it it's weird because it's all relative, right? Like we did only doing so few episodes a month. You're like, okay. It, it felt like it was taking forever and ever. And then when we got past like episode 40, I feel like it flew by. I don't know why. Like sometimes yeah. like for this particular episode, I was going back to look at when we covered Columbine and that was episode 20. Like how was that 80 episodes ago? I don't know. And this is actually not even really counting the episodes that we release that are our live streams. Right. And we've done some that bonus are generally things. go on there. Yeah. They're on Facebook and YouTube. And I think we probably maybe three or four times released the audio yeah. as separate episodes. Episodes, but that's a whole other 40. I know. Oh, yeah. That we generated. It is. We have that's 40 of them. Amazing. But this is, yeah, this is pretty cool to say. And I know that it's taken us a long time, you know, four and a half years in, but it's a pretty cool milestone, I'll have to say. And it is. I wouldn't want to do it with anyone else or alone. Oh, so thank you. Thank you for being here. Well, I can't imagine. For one thing, I can't imagine doing something like this by myself, even though there are some people who I think are wonderful at it. You know, our friend Jamie yeah. does an amazing thing all by herself, which just blows my mind. I know. And Rebecca, yeah. so many people. And and I I get it. Like there was probably a luxury in just having to worry about yourself in one way, but it's just been for me to be able to split this with you and do it alongside you has just been the best experience ever. So what's funny is that what we had to do at the beginning when we were figuring out our sound and we were in the interrogation rooms at a local law enforcement mm -hmm. agency because it had some soundproofing. And now what we found out is that it's actually easier to do it through Zoom. Right. It's way more convenient. We can control the sound quality a lot better. We're not working um, a and I get to 12 see hour you. day and then having to record. Fuck that. Why were we doing that? <laughs> Slugging back two cups of coffee. Like, okay, we can do this. We can get it done. Yeah. We can get it done. Oh gosh, those are the days. But anyway, a hundred episodes really is a huge milestone in television. Many shows, whether they're sitcoms or hour or longer, want to get to a hundred episodes because that's the sort of the magic point where you get to syndication. Oh, that's right. Of course, we don't have anything like that in the, the podcast world. <laughs> podcast world, but hey, we got a lot of content. So here we are. It is July. So folks, you better start making your plans for the True Crime Podcast Festival that's in Dallas this year during the weekend of August 27th. Why are you laughing? So <laughs> we'll bring your anti-frizz <laughs> hairstyling products. Yes, lots of deodorant. And prepare to stay hydrated because it's going to be hot. It's going to be very mm -hmm. hot. You can get your tickets at truecrimepodcastfestival.com. Please come and meet us there. We love meeting our listeners and our fans. Our last couple of conventions were just yep. great. And I didn't even want to go to the presentations because I love sitting at the booth and talking to people, which is why my really? voice is trashed no. still two months later. Really? We love the True Crime Podcast Festival because of the intimacy of the venue. And it gives us such an ability to engage with all y'all and our colleagues. Yes. And of course, because we will be presenting with the brilliantly talented criminologists, Dr. Amy and Dr. Megan, together in person at once on stage <laughs> while being recorded. That'd be awesome. So it'll be 
be hot as balls in <laughs> Dallas on a number of levels, virtually and literally. <laughs> and we will be sequestered in lovely, icy hotel air conditioning. Oh, good. Please come visit yes, us. Please. It'll be a good time. Also, I just wanted to direct people to our monthly live streams that you were talking about because we've had some incredible guests over the past few months. Almost every episode has had a guest from federal law enforcement veterans to authors to leading academics and a fascinating recent interview with a psychic medium. It's just been a joy to really talk to all of these folks. And although we do eventually put these videos up on YouTube, you can check them out there. But the live stream is always the fun part too, if you can tune in for that. And we're sort of in a process where we're deciding the future of our platform for live streaming. And we would really love for it to be able to live stream to multiple social media outlets. So you can sort of tune in from whatever platform you're comfortable with. So just stay tuned for more info on that. For July, our live stream will be live on July 23rd this time. And we're going to have Dr. Joni Johnston a fellow forensic psychologist talking with us about psychological autopsies. So that should be a blast. Can't wait. I love it. I mean, we love her. Clearly a wonderful consummate professional, so talented. And that is something that I know very little about. I know postmortem debriefings, but that is not anywhere near what Dr. Joni does. So I'm very excited about that. And I know all of our listeners will as well. But as far as our last episode recap, if you haven't listened to episode 99, it was our first true crime documentary review episode. We watched and then we talked about The Phantom. It was a story of a brutal murder in 1980s Texas, but it's also a story about racism and the criminal justice system, as well as the issues surrounding wrongful convictions and how individuals so close to the case were impacted. So not giving any spoilers right now, please give it a watch and then give the episode a listen. I think you'll really enjoy it. Yes. All right. So here we are, episode 100. We wanted to do something big and this is certainly a big topic. This will probably turn out to be a little bit of a longer episode, but we get asked about this all the time. Time. And essentially, we're going to talk about what do we know about school shooters? And I'll tell you what we know. We know a shit ton about school shooters, and it's all for your reading, America. So, and it's interesting because the research we have now, even though more robust, it's not that different from what we knew in 2000, you know, 23 years ago, just barely post Columbine. But it's so important that you're nailing it down because you, you are the research queen more so than anybody else that I know that we work with. And you dove into this, all of the most recent stuff. So to be able to say that it's about the same as what we already knew, that's important. That's really important for us to know. Totally. Good. Great point. And yes, I I can thank you for the crown of research queen. Harkening back to our very first episode, I think we called ourselves training whores. And that still holds true because I signed up for virtual training that was like a little refresher on this topic from two of the greatest minds that talk about this. So I'm keeping that strong. Here. The vast majority of our research today is going to be from the great body of work by Drs. Jill Peterson and James Densley of the Violence Project, which is indeed a research project in a living database, but it's also an academic paper turned book that I highly recommend. In their own words, the Violence Project says that they are a nonprofit, nonpartisan research center dedicated to reducing violence in society and using data and analysis to improve policy and practice. 
there are kind of people. Our research today also comes from a slew of articles that of course will be linked on our website, but also trainings that Dr. Scott and I have been to over the years from Reed Malloy, Dr. Chris Mahandi, and Kevin Smith of Smith Strategies, among others, as well as other books on the topic that will also be linked. And of course, don't forget the person that I have made an effort not to mention because I overdid it at the beginning. Well, it's most appropriate today. Uh, Kevin Cameron out of Canada, LCSW, threat and risk assessment individual extraordinaire. He is another one of really the penultimate voices on mass shooters and school incidents. So we just know that this topic alone is going to be, well, it has the potential to be very triggering. We're going to be bringing up some very specific incidents, but please know that we are not going to name any shooters. We have discussed this before. We've talked about our reasons for that in the past episodes. We may talk about weapons used and death tolls, but no details or heart-wrenching stories of anyone's last words or specifics about victims' last moments. And we do that out of a sense of propriety and respect for the survivors and the victims' families. Please do not mistake our clinical nature for coldness because we just want to bring you some data that will help instill understanding and hope for change. And we hope that the way that we deliver this makes it easier for you to go back out and be an informed consumer of this information when you're discussing it and someone comes at you and they are wildly wrong. You can always say, well, Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott said this and they got the receipts. We've got all of the research done for you. We would really love for you to be able to take these conversations with you. We're handing you the real deal stats, numbers, research. This is a great opportunity for everybody to be part of an informed conversation. So please listen with care today and come back to this episode later if you need a break. Don't feel like you need to digest all of it at once, bits and pieces for something like this that is so close to what's happening and that has unfortunately become a regular sustained phenomenon in our country. Let's just be careful about traumatizing ourselves, okay? So we wanted to start with some history to lay groundwork for these types of weapons-related events on school campuses. The earliest known United States shooting Well, actually, we weren't even a country yet. It happened on a school property. It was the Pontiac's Rebellion School Massacre, July 26, 1764, where four Lenape Native Indians or Native Americans entered the schoolhouse, which is near present-day Greencastle, Pennsylvania, shot and killed schoolmaster Enoch Brown and killed nine or ten children. Reports kind of vary on this. And only two children survived. Then there was Pontiac's Rebellion that that was launched in 1763 by a loose confederation of Native Americans that were dissatisfied with British rule in the Great Lakes area, followed by the French and Indian War, which was between 1754 and 1763. So warriors from numerous nations joined in an effort to drive British soldiers and settlers out of the region. So clearly that incident was indicative of something other than what we're talking about today as far as motivation, cultural considerations and the like. But it's still worth mentioning nonetheless that children were murdered in the schoolhouse over 250 years ago. Again, let's be very clear, very different motivations. Absolutely. Yeah. But first documented. And as we go through this evolution and this history, important to talk about. But moving forward in time, another hundred years, the first documented student who came to school to commit murder occurred on November 2nd, 1853 in Louisville, Kentucky. And that student bought a self-cocking pistol in the morning, went to school and killed schoolmaster Mr. Butler for excessively punishing his brother the day before. Even though he shot the schoolmaster point blank 
in front of his classmates, he was acquitted. The first event that was perpetrated by a female school shooter occurred on July 4th, 1886 in Charleston, South Carolina. And during Sunday school, the female perpetrator shot and killed schoolmate John Steedley for, quote, circulating slanderous reports about her, even though her brother, a few days earlier, had publicly whipped that same boy for doing that thing. There's other documented reports of students committing shootings, but prior to 1900, the majority of incidents were students shooting teachers for feeling wronged or for the teachers punishing them as I mentioned of that case in Kentucky. And also there are a handful of them where the students were defending their siblings, either from other bullies or being punished what they felt to, was too harshly by schoolmasters and teachers. But it's very few and far between. And by far and away, most of the discharges of weapons at schools before 1900 were accidentally discharged weapons that basically students had brought to school and then they went off accidentally. Up to the 1930s, most attacks on school were in the form of explosions or arson. And there's a historical case highlighted in the 2000 book, School Violence Threat Management by Chris Mahandi, in which a Michigan town resident in 1927 rigged up an entire school with explosives and killed 38 children and five adults. And this was due to his grievance-driven rage to punish the citizens of the town for new taxes that were going to go towards the school. So I want to put a pin in this example. Just remember the phrase grievance-driven as it's really important as we move forward and start to break down the pathway to violence and why people do what they do in these mass casualty events. Thank you very much for putting a pin in that term. Grievance, grievance-driven holding a grievance, all of those are interchangeable. Very important when you're doing an assessment for the potential for future risk as well. So moving on our timeline, the first mass shooting, which was more like a workplace violence incident, occurred on May 6th, 1940 in South Pasadena, California. After being removed as a principal of South Pasadena Junior High School, Verlin Spencer shot six school officials, killing five, before attempting to die by suicide by shooting himself in the stomach. A mass shooting, by the way, is defined as four or more deaths, not including the perpetrator. So then for about 20 years, we see a pattern of school shootings. There are more of a series of what I would describe as one-on-one -on -one grievances. Then we have a really huge event that's like a time stamp. It is the watershed moment that shifts everything culturally into mass casualty events. And that is the University of Texas Austin mass shooting in August 1966. So just for the purposes of this being the watershed moment, I will mention the name that 25-year-old Charles Whitman went on a 96-minute shooting spree from an observation deck at the University of Texas Austin Tower, killing 17 people and wounding 31 others in an attack that sounds eerily reminiscent of the stories that you're all too used to hearing today. Whitman also murdered his wife and mother earlier that day before continuing on to the university. And again, this is really the marker from which all mass shooting incidents start to occur in a stranger slash victim crime that includes killing random people in a public space. And this is the point from which much of today's data 
stems. Yeah, it's it's really a place where they look at a lot of the data databases you'll see will say 1966 to present when they're looking at these. Weird fact, not a fun fact, but a weird one, I guess, during CrimeCon 2021, which was held in Austin, Chris Mahandi and I jumped in an Uber and decided to go visit this infamous location to really just kind of get eyes on the tower and the plaza. And it's it's pretty impactful to stand in this wide, wide open space surrounded by some beautiful trees. The campus is gorgeous, but it's just so wide open and to see how tall this tower is and how hard it was for law enforcement to figure out how to put Whitman down, how to get him to stop and how vulnerable the victims were. So I I think it's time that we should pivot and kind of look at the evolution of this phenomenon and modern history, really starting with Columbine. And in 1999, we have Columbine, which I would say is one of the most infamous modern day shootings, but really likely thanks to, I think, the associated imagery that we have with Columbine. I mean, it was, I remember watching it being streamed live on television and seeing those lines of kids coming out of that big school. We had the 24 our news cycle that is just sort of re-traumatizing us because they're playing it over and over again. Not only was it live, but then we have that. We have also the the writings and the what we'll talk about later, the legacy tokens left by the perpetrators that were also then things that we were reminded of what had happened in the planning. And I think people found very interesting when they were just trying to wrap their heads around this, as well as the fact that the school was so modern that they had CCTV footage of these crimes happening. And so pieces were, of course, pulled from that or screenshots were pulled from that and put in the news or put in papers. So this, again, like episode 20, I recommend people go back and listen to us just talking about Columbine and its impacts 20 years later, because that's when we did our episode. But I also want to note that all of the mass shootings documented by the Violence Project since the 1970s, only 7.6% took place on K through 12 schools and only 5.2% took place at colleges. So when we go back and look all these decades back, of course, we're thinking school shooting is definitely in our head as far as where these mass shootings are taking place, but it tends to be a relatively small percentage. However, the death tolls are high and of course, it's impacting the most vulnerable, which is horrific and something that definitely needs to continue to be researched and looking at prevention, which is what we're we're talking about today. The most deadly school shooting was in 2007, and that was the massacre at Virginia Tech University in Blacksburg, Virginia. That left 33 people dead, including the shooter, and 17 wounded. And then another marker along this path of evolution of school shootings, of course, was Sandy Hook. And, you know, I really thought, Dr. Scott, that this would be the one that would change it all. And when you have 20 kindergartners murdered. And I started to realize afterwards that nothing was really going to change. I figured if that happens and nothing changes, nothing will ever change this. I mean, those were really my thoughts after this occurred. This was in December of 2012. And it was just 
devastating to everyone. And really the most helpless of the helpless being victimized in this way was, I don't even know how to say it, like just super, super impactful, I think. But where did we go with it? You know, here we are 10 years later and having these same conversations now after something very similar has happened. And I think President Obama really put it well when he said they had their entire lives ahead of them, birthdays, graduations, weddings, kids of their own. It's just such a different way to sort of look at a life that has been lost. Well, looking at the potential that has been absolutely eradicated in those lives without going too far in another direction. And I'm just going to state it plainly. There's no reason to really go into it because that's not the focus of the show. But a big part of why Sandy Hook did not change everything was the immediate political response to it. This issue was used as a political wedge by a lot of political entities across the spectrum. And unfortunately, we are living in a very strange time in social media and in quote unquote news, where our country did away with something that was very useful years ago. It's called the Fairness Doctrine. The Fairness Doctrine, which promoted and held to account news agencies had to show both sides of a Mm -hmm. political perspective. That was done away with by one of the administrations. And as a result, we've had just an unfettered, unreleased, raw vomiting of sewage from a number of streamers. And I don't mind saying that Alex Jones had a lot to do with Sandy Hook. And it's taken 10 years. It is now 10 years later, and he is finally getting his due. I don't know if in the big picture that's going to shut others down. As a result of Sandy Hook, there were people who were put in prison. Sandy Hook truthers that actually threatened the parents of these children. And even in the last, you know, in the last five years, we've had two parents end their lives. Mm -hmm because of the constant harassment that quote-unquote truthers uh, harass them Yeah, with. something we talked about in our Trolls episode. So post-Sandy Hook, most of the focus really went to law enforcement tactics when responding and civilian training in life-saving techniques, but little was done really in terms of getting to the root of the problem. Multiple bills focusing on assault weapons and criminal background checks were introduced, but ultimately defeated. Something really great to come out of it was the Sandy Hook Promise. It's a nonprofit organization dedicated to the reform of gun laws and the promotion of mental wellness. And the group also started the Say Something program that combined education and intervention strategies to attempt to head off acts of violence before they happened, which we will also talk a little bit further on later. And then we saw a really good paper that was done and a a program. You know, this was a research project turned into a program by Catherine Schweit, who was a former FBI special agent. And she created the agency's active shooter program in 2012 that followed the Sandy Hook shooting. So, you know, there, there was more law enforcement, there was more mental health, there was more sort of, let's look at this from all angles, but I feel like it was still very disjointed and has really continued to be, even though, like I said, we've had the data, we've known sort of where to attack these problems rather than just putting up stronger doors to keep bad guys out and teaching our kids how to run, hide, and fight. Another big event where it seemed like there was going to be some change and some movement was in the Parkland, Florida incident when a gunman killed 17 students and teachers at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. And within five weeks, survivors, students, teenagers had organized a protest called March for Our Lives. And they took 
other sorts of immediate action, really engaging with the media, calling out the lack of protection from adults or by adults, sort of that expected safety and protection that they would have by the adults in their life, and eventually had a march and a rally in Washington, D.C., and really was like, felt like it was finally going to be the tip of the spear for student-led policy change. March of Our Lives continues to be an active student-led organization that advocates for policy change and holds marches and rallies to this day. But unfortunately, you know, just some brilliant, brilliant kids standing up and talking about horrific things after their tragedy that I don't know, you know, many adults that could do that. And it was really inspiring to see for the time period that, you know, it stayed in our news cycle, to be honest. And then here we are again, we have the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas, May 24th, 2022. There's a shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, which left 19 very young children and two teachers dead. In June of this year, one month after Uvalde, President Biden, as of a day or two ago of us recording this, signed the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act into law. So this bill amounts to the first major federal gun safety legislation in decades. And the measure includes millions of dollars for mental health, school safety, crisis intervention programs, and incentives for states to include juvenile records in the National Instant Criminal Background Check System. And it also makes some significant changes to the process when someone ages 18 to 21 goes to buy a firearm. And it closes the so-called boyfriend loophole, which for those of you that don't know what that is, when there's a domestic violence or intimate partner violence incident, boyfriends, if you were not living with them or did not have a child with them, could still purchase a firearm if they were charged and prosecuted and convicted of a domestic violence crime. So it has thankfully, you know, closed that because that left out so many perpetrators and so many victims that were just going to be stuck in that cycle and could have been murdered by firearms that their boyfriends who had previously been violent could have used. As a result of this particular shooting, the Texas Senate committee is investigating and are holding different meetings and hearings. And Colonel Stephen McCraw, who's the head of the Texas Department of Public Safety, has been also looking at the portion of this of the response by law enforcement and has basically said this was an abject failure for how this whole situation was handled. So not only do we have the the issue of the shooting happening in Uvalde, but you also have a really lack of response. And it'll be really interesting to show what that investigation tells us once all the information comes out. But people need to know that the good guys or people with guns are going to be able to respond and protect our children and protect us in public spaces as they are expected to. So we'll see what comes of that. It will definitely be interesting. I'm, I'm glad that you emphasize that last point because it may very well be that that lack of action, there's a lot of different ways to describe it. I'm just going to say it, uh, the lack of action may very well be the point of the spear that actually does make a difference. Because like you're saying, we've been told to trust the process, to trust the professionals, yeah. and maybe it's time to look at that it's not enough in what it's been done. If you supposedly have everybody trained at this highest level, then why is it not getting any better? Well, so I, I think there's going to be interesting to see what I happens. I think there's going to be a pretty clear answer 
to what happened in that incident. And I can tell you with what we know and what has been put out there, law enforcement as a whole is horrified, absolutely horrified of... The ones that I work with absolutely were just completely right. flabbergasted right. by the, the response. Because I, I, I was just about to get into law enforcement right after Columbine. And I remember that training completely changing. And even with the smallest city you know that I worked with, we definitely had our orders to go straight in. No, you know, one cop, two cops, it doesn't matter. It's better than no cops. So that's what you do. It, it, it well, it is, it is. And you know, you, generally you want to put your oxygen mask on first so you can help others, right? There, there is some level of like how dangerous could this be for us? But when someone is massacring children, I can't think of a better reason for me to lose my life in the line of duty than that. Yeah. Anyway, absolutely. let's get off our soapboxes. <laughs> Move on. Okay. Well, <laughs> another for the time yeah. being, God, gosh, no, we will probably be back on or I will. <laughs> there is also a parallel project to the violence project. It's called the K-12 shooting database. And the researcher responsible for that works very closely with the Violence Project. So it's described as a nonpartisan database of gun violence on school properties in the U.S. from 1970 to 2021. And their research shows that a couple of really important points that in 2021, there were 249 different gunfire incidents on school campuses. So that more than doubled from 2018, 2019, and wow. 2020. Yeah. This database also tracks threats, including notes, posts on social media, graffiti in restrooms, anything that comes within the purview of a posed threat or an implied threat. And generally, before the last couple of years, they calculated a couple of threats per week. But in the fall of 2021, one, it was a couple of dozen per week. So there's a big question, like, does this only happen in the U.S.? And no, but it is significant. The U.S. does have a significantly higher amount of school shootings than other countries. The CNN research that was done on this recently in the last month identified that there were 288 school shootings between January 2009 and May 2018 in the U.S., but by comparison, looking at Canada and France, each had two, Germany had one, with Japan, Italy, and the United Kingdom not having any. Based on those numbers, the U.S. has had 57 times more school shootings in that time period than any of the other G7 countries, as, as they're described. 57 so, times, yeah. I would say that's a pretty significant. That's a pretty significant number right yep. there. A point that should be noted uh, about the complexities of modern life with social media. There was the TikTok challenge last year. There was an anonymous threat made on TikTok that had U.S. school districts on high alert in December of 2021. The threat, which was also reported as the TikTok challenge, quote unquote, claimed that multiple school shootings were going to take place on a given date. And as a result, many schools across the nation have increased security and issued letters to parents as a precaution. Authorities determined the threat was fake, stating that law enforcement agencies have investigated the threat and determined that it originated in Arizona and is not credible. Right. Still has to be investigated as if it could be th credible because this is a, it's a hydra. You cut off one head and nine grow back. It's going to be an ongoing problem. Yeah. Do you remember that? Did, did anything come across your desk? During December of last year with that? I don't know if it reached I California. Don't, I don't remember. Or... I mean, I don't think I I don't I don't particularly remember that. I would say that right now, since Uvalde, mm. we are experiencing 
a critical upsurge in copycat assertion. I want you so to I'm hold that. Say that they're actually. I want you to hold that okay. and talk about because we're gonna get into that a little bit okay. more. So, but I want to dive into the Violence Project specifically and look at their research, how they do their research, and give you some highlights overall of everything, behaviors, who we're talking about here, prevention, what the pandemic has done. So the Violence Project collected data from interviews with shooters who are still alive, family, people from their past, coworkers, friends, employees, teachers, you name it, really big in-depth interviews, police reports, open source material, including media and social media. The authors note that, of course, this is a limitation because of what the media chooses to report. So you have to weed through that with that in mind. But they cover more than 150 psychosocial history variables, such as the individual's mental health history, past trauma, interest in past shootings, situational triggers they have in their life, you name it. And they have codified all of this. The project followed a research methodology that has proven really effective in terrorism study. So when they look at other types of rare events that can result in mass casualties, they use sort of the same system to research that. Every mass shooting since 1966, and specifically every mass shooter at a school, church, or workplace since 1999 has been included. And when discussing these statistics and findings today, Dr. Scott and I are going to specify whether we're just sort of talking about mass shooters overall or if we're talking about specifically school shooters because I don't want to confuse everyone because really this database comes from mass violence, mass casualty events. And then if under that umbrella, if you will, you have people who use firearms and then you have even you know trickles down more to people who do that at schools. Yeah, that is helpful uh, to make that distinction. But let's look at the demographics of what we know about mass shooters. Some completely non-surprising things to start with, clearly. 97.7 were male. The ages range from age 11 to age 70 with a mean age of 34.1. 52.3% were white, 20.9% black, 8.1% Latino, 6.4% Asian, 4.2% Middle Eastern and 1.8% Native American. Of this demographic, 64.5% had a prior criminal record. 62.8% had a history of violence, including within that a subset of 27.9% having an incident or more incidents of domestic violence. 28.5% had a military background. Most of the shooters died on the scene of the public mass shooting with 38.4% dying by their own hand and 20.3% killed by law enforcement officers. So note that there is no significant demographics profile. It's all about actions and words and a bit all over the place when it comes to looking within the overall sphere of being male. There's a lot going on within that sphere. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to spend a little bit of time looking at what the Violence Project has been able to identify as risk factors for school shooters in the last couple of years. So the pandemic was huge, huge impact on psychological, economical, sociological issues for folks. And if you are the parent of a child, you probably know how this impacted them in 
many, many ways. Some kids definitely more than others and depending on their ages, but definitely, you know, two years out, especially two years out of uh, stay-at-home orders and virtual school, we're starting to get the data on that. Additionally, now the way that social media is, this has an impact on the psychology of people as well as adolescents to where, you know, I've heard it where like, okay, the bullying doesn't stop at three o'clock at school anymore. It's now 24 hours a day because of social media and the ways that social media makes us feel, makes us feel insecure, angry, less than. It also is a conduit for spreading rumors. And there are a lot of tensions there and underlying violence issues that come up and that are spread. So, you know, it's it's a way that like all the, the really great stuff people are curating online can make us feel bad about ourselves. But if we're in that bad space or other bad spaces, and then we're starting to get the doom scrolling stuff that I'm sure a lot of us have been doing the last few days, you know, that doesn't only just make you feel bad, but that could start to radicalize some people. It could start to build grievances for folks. And it's just a world in which you are sort of there by yourself, in your own head, online, with a lot of negativity. Additionally, faith in our institutions as a whole, because of the social events going on the last two years, has really waned, where as the general public, we really don't trust our politicians or our scientists or our police anymore. You know, there's been a real hit to all of those areas because of everything that has gone on globally and specifically here in the United States, for sure. But historically, when society has a lack of faith in our institutions, we see that violence tends to rise. So we're seeing that again now as well. And then they also contribute a couple of other things, lack of services, particularly due to the pandemic, but also just looking at poor student to counselor ratios. I was just talking about this with my husband yesterday. I'm like, I don't know if I could tell you who our student counselor was in high school. Like, shouldn't they just be checking in with everyone? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's 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 something that's that's radically changed in the last few generations, though. I mean, it was and that's a whole other discussion, too, about like why education now costs so much is because they have literally 10 times the amount of staff that they used Mm. to like there are more student counselors there are more student administrators and not always meaning that more gets done and there's not any more success they've just hired more people which you know we had one counselor in our high school yeah that I barely spoke yeah, with. Yeah, exactly. You know, our our student administration, my undergrad, you know, I had two conversations with them over four years. That was about it. Yeah, I've had teachers either that are clients or that I know reach out to me just basically saying like the school psychologist, even though they have a psychologist, that person's divided up among a bunch of different schools. And so they might be there one day a week. And there's talk about how terrible that system is for... One, getting a hold of them, but then really getting a student that they're worried about in front of that person. So anyway, the Violence Project said, yeah, lack of services, it could be done better. And then finally, in the last two years, there's been record gun sales. So what you have with record gun sales is you have kids in closer proximity to guns than really ever. And that we just saw gun sales during the pandemic and during the protests of 2020, shoot through the roof, no pun intended. So proximity and how students 
obtain weapons to perpetrate a shooting. That's going to be really important when we talk about that in a second. Yeah, I that is such an interesting bit of information that you found. I wish we had been able to parse even further to see with that increase in weapons purchases, weapons sales. Does it differ from five to 10 years ago where the majority of sales were driven by an actually a smaller group of people that bought massive amounts of weapons. Like there are, there's a small part of that population that every time tensions get high, they go out and buy another 10 guns. And you can see these people online. There's like Instagrams for them of their downstairs man cave that is set up with literally hundreds of guns displayed versus what's going on now. I think there's more of a movement of people feeling, no, I've got to protect myself for whatever reason. What, you know, and if you're going to a gun show or you're going to big five and getting your gun, are you really going through all the gun safety treatment protocols about how you keep a weapon safe in your house? Which means, like you were saying, access to oh, weapons. Oh, the test is a joke. The test that they give I know. you. <laughs> I know. That's I came joke. back and gave it to them in like five minutes and they were like, you finished already? I was like, yes. But I also know that a friend of mine went and got herself a gun when the, you know, when everyone was like, oh my God, what's it going to be like to get toilet paper at Costco back in those days? And she passed the test and she, uh, she didn't go to a training class. Like she just has a weapon in her house. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, go. let's go to the range. Can I at least take you to the range with me, please? Yeah. Can I just give you the basics? Because without the basics, that's where the danger happens. But another tangent, let's get to prominent traits in the population of mass shooters. People responsible for public mass shootings in the U.S. over the last 50 years were unilaterally commonly troubled by personal trauma before their shooting incidents, nearly always in a state of crisis at the time, and in most cases, engaged in leaking their plans before opening fire. Most of them were insiders of the targeted institution, like a workplace or a school. Most of them used legally obtained handguns in those shootings. Again, emphasis on this. Most mass shooters used legally obtained handguns in their shootings, except for the young school shooters who stole their guns from family members. I just want everyone to tattoo that on your brain so that you understand where yes. the majority of these weapons are coming from. There's no single profile of a person who engaged in a mass shooting, but the interviewed mass shooters share the following bullet points of traits. Number one, an early childhood trauma and exposure to violence. Number two, an identifiable keyword grievance or crisis point. Number three, a validation of beliefs, meaning that they were finding inspiration in past shootings perpetrated by others. And then number four, they have the means to carry out an attack, which is probably the linchpin of everything. Otherwise, everything is all thought and consideration, but the means to carry it out then makes it, it takes the lethality to just a completely yep. different level. So as you were talking about from the Violence Project, um, Dr. Peterson has a quote here. There's this really consistent pathway. Early childhood trauma seems to be the foundation, whether violence in the home, sexual assault, parental suicides, extreme bullying. Then you see the build towards hopelessness, despair, isolation, self-loathing, oftentimes rejection from their peers. And I would just cut in here as Dr. Scott saying many times, it doesn't matter actually, right. 
whether that rejection is real, it's perceived right. rejection from your peers. But then Dr. Peterson goes on to say that turns into a really identifiable crisis point where they're acting differently. Sometimes they have previous suicide attempts. So what's different from a traditional suicide is the self-hate turns against a group. They may start asking themselves, whose fault is this? Is it a racial group or is it women or a religious group? Is it my classmates? And then the hate turns outward. Yep. Great quote, yep. really great quote from Dr. Yeah. Peterson. So we're starting to talk about pathways and speaking of pathways, do you want to talk about <laughs> probably one of the most commonly used this these days when we do threat assessments would be this one by Reed Malloy. Of course, yeah. What Dr. Malloy, St. Dr. Malloy <laughs> calls proximal warning behaviors. And that is, I would say it's probably the most researched and well-known steps along the pathway to mass violence that we understand today. So first of all, there's pathway. The subjects engage in various behaviors that encompass parts of research, planning, or preparation for a terrorist act or implementation of such an attack. Then there is fixation. Certain behaviors indicate someone's increasingly pathological preoccupation with a person or with a cause. There is an accompanying deterioration in relationships or occupational performance. In four out of five attacks, a fixation is present. This is indicative of what he's thinking. Yeah, I've heard of sort of something that complements this point of fixation is that these people in this phase along the path have been described as hurt harvesters. So in other words, they have just a resting state where they're always feeling slighted or always feeling marginalized. And yes. the FBI calls these folks injustice collectors. I think those are so spot on. That's, those are really good terms to remember. So hurt harvesters, I think, is a little bit more pithy with the alliteration. It's easier to remember, but injustice collectors really describes it a lot better, I think. So identification is the next point on the warning behaviors. Persons have a psychological desire to be pseudo-commando or have a warrior mentality. This includes closely associating with weapons or other military or law enforcement paraphernalia, identifying with previous attackers or assassins, or proclaiming themselves as agents to an advance of a particular cause or belief. How familiar does that oh, sound? Oh, yeah, we see picture, yeah, picture after picture of people either that they send along with their manifestos or that we find afterwards digging up on their social media where they're in uniform or posing with their weapons and sometimes fake uniforms like that don't aren't even real. They've just kind of thrown them together themselves, but really like starting to identify as that pseudo commando, getting themselves pumped up for what they're going to become. Yeah. So what, what am I going to become? It almost reminds me of like the, the first, uh, the, the prequel to Silence of the Lambs is Manhunter. And it was all about, I think Francis Dollarhide is the serial killer in that fictional work. And he is becoming, you know, his idea is that he is ascending to this new level of identity. And this is what happens on a, an absolutely realistic level is I am moving into something. I'm not saying this for humor's sake at all, but when you see some of these pictures of the guys who are adopting all of this military paraphernalia, it's like, you're not a soldier no. <laughs> at all. You are, you are meal team six, yeah. you know, like 180 pounds overweight and just loaded up with, with guns, with 
clearly no training. And I'm not even, I'm, I'm barely a trained shooter. I have a little bit of experience and I can tell that the guys holding these guns have no experience. They're like loaded for bear with no training. Anyway, back to our point. So we're now at number four, novel aggression. For the first time, the subjects commit an act of violence that appears unrelated to any of the previous pathway behaviors. They do this to test their ability to become violent. Can I do it? Mm -hmm. Am I capable of this? Oh, I've done it. And now I've gotten my little dopamine drip. That's now going to start a cascade. The next point, an energy burst. It is an increase in the frequency or variety of their noted activities, even if those are relatively innocuous, if they're related to the target. So the energy burst is interesting because if most of their behavior online is abundant, this will be the opposite. Online behavior will suddenly cease because all of their energy is now being focused into actualization in the real world. It's a sign. Next point. What's that? It's just, it's a sign, you know, it's a deviation from whatever the regular is. Yes. A deviation from the regular pattern. Exactly. Next point is leakage. So this is communication of some means to a third party of the intent to do harm to a target through an attack. I would probably expand a little bit more that leakage can be less direct. Mm -hmm. It can be less clear in the communication, but it can be just as impactful and just as indicative of potential violence. Maybe they're not explicitly saying what they're going to do, but you can hear the ramping up in their narrative when they communicate. I mean, I'm seeing that when I do the work and I'm looking at the text that people sent to all of their friends. It's like, well, there's a pattern. Well, and we, there is definitely leakage. We know about the significance and the high percentage of individuals that engage in leakage because in hindsight, it's so obvious, you know, after the thing occurred, then you have people coming forward or you are looking back at writings or postings and it's like, oh shit, this is definitely leakage. Yeah. And I think, no, that's a really great point because everybody wants to question when something is not quite so explicit, you want to, for your own mental and emotional safety, you want to go, oh, they're just kidding. Oh, he would never do that. He's a little bit of a freak, but he's not going to do that. He's not saying he's going to do it. So we make all these excuses. And I will say that like what I have found recently is that there's more training now in schools. I mean, they, especially good school districts are saying, if you have any concerns, you report it. And it's well worth doing that, even if it's not explicit. Two last points. This one called last resort warning. It is a behavior that is a signal of desperation that is due to loss. And the subject believes that they must act now. Then there's direct threat. Individuals communicate a direct threat to the target or law enforcement before a violent action via manifesto, writings left behind to the person as they're carrying out the act. And then I would also say that something that goes in here that is potentially maybe part of last resort warning behavior is the loss of support. Like Mm. everything here is really a house of cards. It is a really fragile construct of emotional stability. And if there is something there that suddenly gets removed, if there is a relationship and they get broken up with, boom, that's going to trigger it. If it's the loss of a job, if it's a bad grade, if it's a bad interaction at school, that definitely can be the trigger that pushes all of these things into high gear. And Dr. Malloy had also done a study where I think he used school shooters out of Germany and, you know, to his credit, he said it was a very small sample, but what he did is he looked at the school shooters there and saw how many of these proximal warning behaviors were present for them. But then he also compared it to 
students that were of some concern that teachers were like, oh, there seems to be leak. Like they, they had leak. They took everyone that they had leakage with because leakage is so bad or prominent. There's just a lot of false positives with leakage. So they took the shooters and compared them to just the students of concern. And the shooters had probably four or five of these points, these proximal behaviors were a hundred percent of them were engaging in them. And then it was like, you know, 50%, 30% on some of the others. And then for the students that were just of concern, but didn't end up acting out very low on every single one of these, except leakage was at a hundred percent. So it's really interesting when you look at it, like on a bar graph for the shooters, these were all very high bars. And for those that were just of concern that did not act out, they didn't have all of these going on. They just had leakage really going on. So fascinating stuff when you get into the numbers. Our friend, Dr. John Delatore, did some research in this area. He's somebody that we spoke with on a Get Vocal. So please go and check out a really interesting conversation with him on YouTube. But he proposed what he calls an autogenic cycle. So rather than a pathway, kind of looking at this as a cycle that occurs with school shooters specifically. Autogenic, meaning they have their own experience of the cycle, which I think is great because although we're going going to get into some commonalities, each perpetrator and situation is so different. So I love that he takes that into account. But it really starts with emotional inconsistency, which is the inability to regulate distress appropriately. This could be mental illness, but it doesn't have to be. This could just be a time of distress for a person, which then leads to self-loathing and low self-esteem. And then the next piece on that cycle from emotional inconsistency is where a distorted worldview starts to form, where the negative emotions can start to shape the way in which the person views the larger world. It's kind of moving from the emotional piece to now the cognitive piece. There's persecutory thoughts leading to paranoia of other people and fueling ideology. And then from there, that distorted worldview leads to a stage called escapism and fantasizing. So, quote, aggressive behaviors become planned in retaliation to the world that has been so unjust. This stage allows an opportunity for the person to find an outlet for the negative thoughts and emotions being experienced in the previous stages of a cycle, end quote. So there's sort of like a little psychological relief here, not unlike when a suicidal person starts planning their death. You know, they all of a sudden they're in a they look like they're in a good mood and they're coming around and turning a corner, but it's because of the relief of, okay, I've decided to do this. So after that, there's an acting out phase then where the individual is confident as they carry out their plan, sometimes even acting calm, nonchalant. There's even been accounts of perpetrators laughing while they're doing this. And this is a cycle because this could happen with maybe the acting out isn't the school shooting. Maybe it's some other form of acting out, but then the cycle starts all over with the emotional inconsistency. So really interesting stuff here, just kind of looking at different ways of either a pathway or kind of a cycle where these students go in and out of going from emotions to cognitions to behaviors. Going back to the violence project, some key issues that they find are really important to look at here. And the first one is suicidality. It was found to be a very strong predictor of perpetration of mass shootings. So I want everyone to listen to these numbers. Of all mass shooters in the database, the Violence Project database, 30% were suicidal prior to the shooting and an additional 39% were suicidal during the shooting. But when we look at K-12 through students, 
who engaged in mass shootings. So those previous numbers were just for mass shootings. Now we're looking at school shootings. 92% of those students, K through 12, were suicidal. And we when we look at college students who perpetrate shootings, 100% of them were suicidal at the time. So this cannot be ignored. I'm sorry. This is a big piece for us to look at prevention-wise. Those stats are frightening and and indicative. I mean, we have to act on that. Another key issue that they identified was looking at trauma. So 31% of persons who perpetrated mass shootings were found to have experiences of severe childhood trauma. And those who experienced childhood trauma were more likely to be school shooters. So I just want to be clear. In a database of mass shooters, those who perpetrated school shootings were more likely to have that childhood trauma in their background. So they're acting out almost more closely in time to when that happened because they're younger. The majority of those who had traumatic backgrounds also had higher rates of leakage, which is really interesting to sort of not necessarily causation, but looking at the correlation there. Over 80% of the mass shooters were in crisis at the time of the shooting. So that was defined as a marked change in behavior from baseline. Just whatever crisis meant to that person could vary for sure. But crisis distress for that person was definitely reported by people around them. And regarding being in crisis, the research identified what they called the four Ds were usually present before a shooting. So this would be described as either one, disruptive, so behavior that impacted their environment, like being argumentative or unruly, dysregulated, which was behavior that caused other people to feel uncomfortable, distressed, sort of a a signs of helplessness or suicidal ideation, or dangerous, where their behavior was threatening the well-being or safety of other people. So again, these four Ds, disruptive, dysregulated, distressed, and dangerous is all, they made the the point that it's really a deviation from whatever that person's baseline is. So this person is not the person that's distressed all the time or not dangerous all the time. It's in this very important window that we need to be paying attention to. Now, mental illness, they, they definitely think that they have to talk about mental illness at some point because we know that everyone wants to blame that as the root cause of mass shootings, but it's very complicated. So mental health issues were shown to be common among those who engaged in, in mass shootings overall. Psychosis played a primary role in mass shooters only 10% of the time and was a minor role in motives and reasons that mass shooters engaged in shootings in one third of cases. So I think, and Scott, you probably agree here, like when people think mental illness, they always just think psychosis, <laughs> like the the most dramatic or sort of visual that they can think of when they think of mental illness is someone who's walking around, who's had a break from reality, that's hearing things and seeing things. And these are the numbers speaking directly to that because it's definitely not everyone, nor does it play a primary role in the majority of cases. I think the media likes to make it a trope that, you know, someone so wildly disorganized, hearing things, seeing things, believing things would be able to carry out something that actually requires planning. Now, I will say that while it is it would be a very rare occurrence, I would go so far as to conjecture that there is an overlap between a subset of psychosis, which is people with delusional disorder. So someone with high functioning delusional disorder, meaning they're high functioning in every other part of their lives. They can 
work, they engage in activities of daily living, but they have a hardcore belief system that is radically altered. That is what we would call, we've talked about this before, bizarre delusions, bizarre beliefs. Those persons might have more of a propensity to act out, but thankfully that is a very, very rare occurrence. So once again, like you're saying, minor role in a nearly what one third of the cases, very important. Yes. In 2018, the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit also addressed this. They conducted research that showed of 63 rampage shooters that they looked at, only a quarter of the offenders were known to have been professionally diagnosed with a mental illness of any kind. And while it's possible that some suicidal attackers may have gone undiagnosed, only three of the 63 perpetrators, which is like 5% of the total examined, had a psychotic disorder. So again, as we know, extensive research tells us that the link between mental illness and violent behavior is small and not useful for predicting violent acts. And people with diagnosable conditions are far more likely to be victims than perpetrators of violence. We aren't saying that school shooters or mass shooters are mentally healthy or mentally well, but they're there is more going on and their behaviors are different from those of us who aren't mentally well at any given time. So that's a great distinction. I I would say, I would go on to say that, look, if there's any illness or dysregulation, it is an overwhelming preponderance of anger, anger turned inward that is not processed appropriately because maybe the person doesn't have the ability to tolerate those high levels of anger and therefore it is expressed outwards. Now, when we say that, that's verging over into personality disorder territory. Maybe not full blown, but just overwhelmingly, as you guys out there are listening to this, you get a recurring theme of anger, just being uncontrollably angry Mm -hmm. at forces that you don't feel you have any control over. Yeah, for sure. Scott, some more key issues that the Violence Project found. Do you want to touch on those? Oh, well, yes. Thank you. So there actually is some more specific information on leakage. So again, definition of leakage. That is communication by an individual to a third party of intent to do harm to a target through an attack. This definition is by Dr. Reed Malloy and former Special Agent Mary Ellen O'Toole. Very distinct, very simple, great bullet point to remember. So matching previous research, the Violence Project showed that nearly half of the individuals who engaged in mass shootings, that was 48%, leaked their plans in advance to others, including family members, friends, colleagues, as well as strangers and law enforcement officers. This is super important when we look at intervention. Absolutely. It's so important. Other research has found that 60 to 90% of the time leakage is present. However, leakage occurs at a very high rate with very many false positives, which is a big problem. Yeah. This is a real problem. So leakage so, gets reported to you, right? It does, as well it should. And it actually, it, we, we should all get better at developing our skills to be able to discern through linkage. It's part of my job every day. And as we were saying earlier, and you put a pin in it to come back to this, is after Uvalde, we had a huge uptick in threats from ages from middle school all the way up, even into adulthood. And there are some that you'll look at. And because I've been doing this job so long, I would look at it and go, oh, well, tick point, tick point, tick point there. That's not a legit threat. And then you catch yourself and you go, nope, 
got to throw all that out the door, start all over and let me see what I can parse out through this. Does this person have the means? Is there a history? Blah, blah, blah. You have to take each one as if it is absolutely a potential for an immediate right. shooting. Right. But you ha- you do get those where it comes in and it's from someone who absolutely cannot perpetrate this, whether they're in what, like a locked facility or just don't have the physical capabilities even to do it. Yes. Right? That's the easy one. That's the easy one. Or, and I'll give an example that I'll, let me de-identify this. An eight-year-old girl who says that she's going to shoot up her school and she has lots of guns at home because she knows where mom keeps all of her guns. And then, you know, working with law enforcement, they do a run on mom. Mom doesn't have any guns. You go and you meet with mom. Mom's horrified. And she says, we absolutely have no guns in this house. There are no weapons accessible at all. So there you can go, okay, this is not a legit immediate threat, but clearly something's Mm -hmm. going on for this client. Let's see what we can do to evaluate what the needs are. So that's one where you breathe a sigh of relief, but you know, you still have to, you have to attend to each of those. And look, I, I work in Southern California in a large agency in a big city. We have the ability and the means and the staff to do this. So smaller entities across the country may not have the ability to process all of the these contagion effect events that come up. Moving on to another aspect of leakage is legacy tokens. So I have never heard that term before. Thank you for finding that. I just always thought of it as like the manifestos in whatever form they come out. But that can be a video message like uh, the Ila Vista shooter left, you know, his numerous um, videos that he made on his phone as he was driving in his car. These were left by 23.4% of those who committed mass shootings. Then going on to the category of firearms, most individuals who engaged in mass shootings used handguns 77.2% of the time, 25.1% used assault rifles, 77% of those who engaged in mass shootings purchase at least one of their guns legally. Right. 13% were illegal purchases. And then 80% of K through 12 school shootings stole guns from family members. This is what look, this is, this is what this is all about. Thank you for doing all this because Shiloh, Shiloh, I'm just going to give her credit. She did, you did all the heavy lifting on this episode, but this is frightening. 80% of K through 12 shootings stole guns from family members. People lock them up. 80%. Like how much of a dent could we put prevention wise easily, so easily, easily put a, put them in safes, put a gun lock on them. Don't let your fucking kids know where your guns even are and do what you got to do because they're not going elsewhere to get them. 80%. So this is why I'm happy that Look, parents I'm, are going to start uh, getting prosecuted. I am too. I think it's it's the only way to go. There, the other point is that it's not just about hiding them. It is not just about gun safes. It is not just about locked closets, whatever. It is about having direct, firm conversations with your family, with your children. If you are an advocate of a firearms lifestyle, a person who collects firearms, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. That that's that's your thing. You know, some people like collecting kicks, motorcycles, you collect guns. That's your thing. Absolutely, it's fine. 
but you are responsible for educating your family on the rules. Nobody touches these without permission. These are weapons. And unfortunately, many of the times when I interview people, this is just not even in their idea. The the, the families don't think about it. It's like, well, I had it locked up. Did you ever talk to your kids about it? Blank. Oh my gosh. So a couple of other things to talk about that the Violence Project was able to parse out is the idea of copycats. So they found that one in five mass shooters studied other mass shooters. And one shooter that they interviewed discussed the research he had done on Columbine and recounted how he had related to what they were feeling, the anger, the suicidal ideation, and at some point even felt a bond with them, even though he wasn't even alive when Columbine happened. So he's forming a relationship with these boys that are emulating the way that he's feeling inside. I thought that was just so interesting because absolutely we're post-Columbine where kids are perpetrating these crimes and they weren't even born when this happened. So it's not like it was, you know, something that was stuck with them at a young developmental impactful age. And contagion effect, Scott, you threw out that term a moment ago. Research has shown a measurable increase in the likelihood of another mass shooting in the days after one occurs. And it's been nailed down to approximately about a 13-day window that might be in the violence project. I did not pull that stat out from them. I pulled that from some other training that I've done. But every time now, after I heard that, I was like, okay, 13 days when one happens. And it seems like that window has been getting smaller and smaller of late. Regarding Buffalo and then Uvalde, Dr. Peterson, after that, pretty recently said, quote, you have an 18-year-old commit a horrific mass shooting. His name is everywhere. And we spend all the days talking about replacement theory. That shooter was able to get our attention. So if you have another 18-year-old who's on the edge and watching everything, that could be enough to embolden him to follow. We've seen this happen before, end quote. So that's exactly it. That's exactly how I've had it described to me before is you have somebody that's bubbling, that's on edge, that probably has their plan all put together for months or weeks. And then they see this other thing happen and it's like, okay, it's it's go time. I need my piece of this as well. Just a super interesting but scary phenomenon. So th- there's another piece here that I wanted to talk about that wasn't really pulled from research necessarily, but I just find it so intriguing, these cases in which we find that there's a mass attack or mass shooting, but then the investigation uncovers that the perpetrator had murdered someone else right before they went out and did this. So you talked about the Isla Vista incel shooter. He had murdered his roommates and a visitor to his apartment right before he went out and did his attack. Sandy Hook, he murdered his mother before. We saw it again in Uvalde. He attempted to murder his grandmother right before he went and did his attack. Also, that 1927 case where the man rigged the school with explosives, he had murdered his wife before he went on his rampage. So this is called a bifurcated event when essentially they're saying there there's a string of actions, violent acts in this perpetrator's day, but they start at one location and then go to another to carry out. So killing someone at home perhaps and then moving on to another location. Usually what researchers have hypothesized for this is that it's a way to start the violence behind closed doors as a test to see if they can do it. Can I do it 
And then I have a moment to stop and think because the police aren't coming, the sirens aren't happening. You know, it's sort of a safe zone, but it's also the point of no return. Now that I did this, it's almost, it's a step up from what we see with legacy tokens and manifestos because once they press send, and that thing goes to Facebook, they got to go do their thing because now they've put it out to the world. Someone's going to find it. This is almost in that same vein, but obviously stepped up to another murder. So it it really amps them up for the real massacre. And I, I hope we have more about this behavior come out in the research because I just find this piece fascinating. Yeah. It seems to me that if the manifesto is the kindling, then the attempt at a contained murder is lighting the fuse Mm -hmm. that is putting the match underneath the kindling to set the fire like that is. And once again, you know, we, we know what goes on in the brain when you are able to complete a small task, it actually gives you the confidence to know, Oh, great. I got a little bit of accomplished. I know I can do this now, Yeah, which can be used for very good means of, of, you know, uh, changing your behavior. But in a way there's something that must be an incredible reinforcement for these shooters when they are able to follow through and complete the murder and how, I mean, it's a whole other level, too, of when you're killing someone that's so intimate to you. Not so much Ila Vista with your roommates. I don't think there was a lot of intimacy there, depending, especially because he was so strange. Sure. But with these shooters that kill their parents, particularly their mothers first, which is just so psychoanalytic. I, I mean, know. it's very Freudian of going after the the source of your nurture. And I'm not saying they were healthy relationships. They're, we don't know. I'm not, you know, I'm, I think there's a wide spectrum of relationships with mom. Yeah, there. well, that's what. But taking that out on mom. Yeah, I would that's where I would like to see more of is, you know, is there is that person extension of their grievance or their anger? And you know, I could even see that with the Isla Vista shooter of, you know, if his roommates were able to get dates and bring girls home. And it's just it might be just symbolic of that same ideology, or you know, what were these relationships like with the mothers and the grandmothers or the parents of some of these other situations? When you have issues with attachment, when you can't completely generate a positive ongoing relationship with your parental source of slash nurture, if you are alternately desiring of nurture, but unable to take it in and then pushing back in anger, there's just this constant toxic treadmill going on between an individual and the parental individual, usually the mom. So in a way, it's almost... As bizarre as this sounds, I believe that action is cutting ties to the anchor. Mm. I am no longer anchored to you. I can move forward with these horrific plans. So again, like you're saying, I hope that there's, (laughs) well, no, I'm just like, it's my clinical view. I mean, that's what, I think it makes sense. That's why I love working us together. We get these different perspectives and like, like you're saying, I don't know. I'm just kind of looking, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking spontaneously about what I know about analytic work, which I'm not even really that strong in analytics, but I do know about those attachment issues. So that'd be very interesting for further research I, to look totally down the road agree. if we can get any of yeah. that. Well, should we take everything we've talked about and kind of let's start spinning towards hope and looking at prevention? Who, yeah, I think we could benefit from that, everybody. And, and and everybody, thank you for bearing with us. I mean, maybe this is not any longer than our previous long episodes, but it's a lot heavier. So 
I, hopefully you've been taking breaks because this this is some heavy shit. Look, generally, most time and energy has been spent on protection when an attack occurs. Run, hide, fight, metal detectors, lock doors, use your belt to jam the door hinge, training for school and law enforcement, but that's protection. It's not prevention. So thankfully, there are organizations that are focusing on this. The off-ramp project as a part of the violence project. Their tagline, the pathway to violence is long and we need to build more off-ramps. I love that because I have been, all of my work is built on Kevin Cameron's statement that the pathway to violence is an evolutionary process. At any point, if we could get someone to take an off-ramp, then we're way ahead of the game of cutting these events off in the future. So the website is really great. It has resources for building a crisis response team. A website, resources, free, people, go get it. Creating a response team, forms for reporting. So if you're an educator or a person that might be part of a team or starting a team, this is going to give you the best foundation, completely free. Schools across the country can access this right now. Absolutely. But they have to look at it and they can't minimize it. You can't have a school board that just says, well, that's never going to happen here. Because as we all know, it does happen everywhere. So we have to think of these as suicides and suicide prevention. These individuals absolutely do not expect to survive. So when we talked about so many male perpetrators, but one of the big turning points in all of this genre which I hate to use the word genre, of school shootings occurred in 1979. There's a very famous school, uh, there's a very famous song called I Hate Mondays. And that is based on what was said in an interview after a young woman shot the elementary school across the street from her home. It was Grover Cleveland School, 1979. They asked her, why did you commit this crime? Because I wanted to die. I wanted to commit suicide. Why did you pick the school across the street? Because I knew that if I fired on the school, the police would show up and they would shoot and kill me. And every time I tried suicide in the past year, I screwed it up. This is such a big deal. So I am so incompetent that I can't even carry through my own desire to end myself. So I'm going to even further displace that anger out. I'm going to screw things up so bad that the cops are going to have to kill me. Yeah. And isn't it interesting how we latch onto the I hate Mondays piece and just nobody really looks at the real reason she gave them. Really digging deeper. Yeah. And even making it into a song. (laughs) Yes. As if that that was the only, I mean, like, I don't, I don't necessarily blame, I mean, that's what art is. Art is, is out there to be provocative and make us think. And I think, uh, you know, how clearly a lot of people miss the point of that song, but like you're saying, the important thing is that because that statement took all the air out of the room, Mm -hmm. nobody looked at what she actually was trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. And with the numbers that we gave you earlier about how many students are suicidal at the time that they're doing this or right before, and they do not intend to survive this. And Scott and Dr. Scott and I have talked about the overlap between homicidal ideation, suicidal ideation, and it's clearly both of those things are going on here, that why wouldn't we look at suicide prevention in the schools as something that that needs the money, that needs the training, because that's where those off-ramps are going to be for these students. Another notion that's really interesting is the desire for notoriety and the on the part of the perpetrator, and then how we see the media handling these shootings and how we've seen that evolve over the years. Again, something you and I have talked about a lot within American society, the desires for fame and attention and celebrity status is 
bigger and more widespread than it has ever been before. And we can also put this into perspective when we're looking at 10 to 12-year-olds who were surveyed and said, you know, what's the most important thing for their future? And the most common answer was, oh, to be famous. That's what it is. Not to be financially successful, not to be part of a community or not to be nice, but to be famous. And we look at millennials, 50% of millennials say that they think their life should be made into a movie. (laughs) We're talking about a lot of self-centeredness and like desire to be given 15 minutes or more these days. And a study from 2019, which looked at mass shootings from 1966 to 2019, also addressed the fame notoriety piece from commenting on how the media covers and portrays shooters. So attackers often recognize that the killing of innocent people will garner substantial media attention for their personal legacy and what they think is sort of pushing forth their ideology. For instance, the 26-year-old man who murdered nine and wounded wounded nine at Umpqua Community College in 2015, Scott, you and I talk about him in our incel presentation, he had posted comments expressing admiration for a Virginia killer who murdered former colleagues live on television. They were a news reporter and a cameraman. And he said this, his face splashed across every screen, his name across the lips of every person on the planet, all in the course of a day. Seems like the more people you kill, the more you're in the limelight. And we've seen other comments like that left in legacy tokens from other shooters. And I'm I'm linking that to the media responsibility piece because what happened after the Virginia case where those two people were killed on live television, the Daily News did a full page of three images from the shooter's perspective with the gun out, the horror on the female victim's face just before she was murdered. And it was horrific. There was really a call for change of coverage after that. And those things were clearly like, let's not post pictures of a murder actually happening, even though there's still images, but it basically was like a still version of a snuff film, but not naming perpetrators, not glorifying the acts, not talking about who has the highest kill count, things like that. Reed Malloy has stated of the media, he's pled, pled with them, stop using the term lone wolf and stop saying school shooter. He believes that in the minds of these young men that this makes these acts of violence cool. It sounds like this is a person to be admired. So he says, quote, this, they think this has got to have some juice behind it and I can get out there and do something really cool. I can be a lone wolf or I can be a shooter. And instead he says, we need to use language that talks about the behavior and not the person. So an act of mass murder or an act of lone terrorism, instead of making these little celebrity labels. It's also that lone wolf is a particularly alluring tag that these guys want because they feel isolated. It's like, okay, I'm I'm isolated. I can't connect with anybody. So let me take the worst of what I'm experiencing and turn it into this sort of archetype, which is doesn't even exist. Wolves aren't lone. I know. Wolves are pack animals. Like it's all, there is no such thing as an alpha wolf. There is no such thing as an alpha. There is no such thing as a lone wolf, but we've turned it into this crazed pop culture archetype that people are just salivating over. Yeah. Great way to put it. After the 2012 shooting in Aurora, Colorado, the parents of victims launched a no notoriety campaign admonishing the media 
to never use mass shooters names. And then lastly, in on this topic, I highly recommend any of Mark Fullman's writings on the topic of mass shooters. And he's a journalist, so he's t- talked about the media's responsibility a lot, but he's an excellent investigative journalist. He also created a first-of-its-kind public database of mass shootings back to 2012. And he has a book called Trigger Points that's also about how we can stop mass shootings. And we'll link all of that. But fantastic writer. Look him up. I think he is still with Mother Jones. I'm not sure. He's done writings for a lot of different places too. Yeah. Excellent, excellent writer. The Violence Project also looked at would-be school shooters. They looked at 130 cases that were thwarted. They were stopped in their tracks, thankfully, and they found some really interesting information. 91% of these take place in public schools. So is it a resource Mm. issue? I would say probably not. My information is anecdotal, but my, and now look, anecdotal in that I also work within the largest school agency in Southern California. And what I see is that there are a lot of resources and it's really well done. In private and magnet and charter schools, their rules were out the window. They did whatever they want and managing those situations was a lot more challenging. But you know, I don't know if the Violence Project was actually looking for that. It's something that I may actually reach out to them to say, hey, you might want to consider diving into this area to get your stats a little bit more accurate. But what they also found was that school shooters are school children. They can't be locked out with protective measures because they know the protection measures. They know what the rules are. They know how to get in. They're at the trainings Um, of how to run, hide, and fight. You know, these are Right, exactly. Which, exactly, you're actually, in some ways, you may be teaching them to be better if that's the path that they're on. Young men, average age is 15 to 16 years old. Half of them, or almost half, have a violent record and a disciplinary record and a history of bullying. Bullying is ongoing, chronic, and severe. Bullying almost always indicates that there is something going on at home. It's not like this person fully sprang, full formed from mother's womb just being a bully. Something is likely having happening at home. Not saying that that has to do with the traumatic event that you were talking about, but it's something that should be looked at. This is really fascinating that you found. Most of the school shootings occur in the morning, possibly even before the school starts. I did not realize that. And the 20th is the most common date of the month for school shootings, likely due from Columbine with emphasis on contagion issues, copycat issues, possibly. Not sure, but it seems pretty much that that would be the indication or can't imagine why else there would be a number. These events tend to be at transition times for the school, around breaks, the end of the school year. And of course, there is an absolute stress correlation. That's something that I witness every time is around exam time, around the end of school when people are thinking. Or what we will find is towards the end of school, there's tons because people may be heading to no plans for the summer and they know they're not going to have their built-in socialization, their built-in refuge from being at home or from whatever environmental issues that may be troubling them. If that's going to be pulled away, it could start this cascade event. So there's no profile with a risk assessment tool to fill out. There'd be millions of students who meet the criteria of some of these commonalities that you and I Mm -hmm. have talked about today. Yes, absolutely. However, there are four strong factors that we do see where prevention or intervention could be key. That is, this is almost like a little summary of what we've been talking about. So again, a high number, over 90% of school shooters are former students or students of the school. So they are kids that are walking those halls 
and kids that we have the opportunity to have resources for, to have mental health resources for them, counselors for them, and these off-routes that we're talking about. Also, 87% of them were in crisis prior to the shooting. Again, another moment in time where there could be some intervention. Then there's the suicidal piece. Again, 80% suicidal prior to the shooting. These numbers are huge. You know, I'm talking over 80 and 90 percentages. <laughs> like we're seeing this with all these kids. 80% taking guns from their parents. Again, lends back to safe storage, preventing even if we're just talking about preventing accidents, we know that when people get injured or killed by guns in this country, the majority of the time, it's an in-home accident because just a firearm is present and someone is handling it in an unsafe way, but as well as prevention of suicide at home and the school shootings that we're talking about here. And then almost 80% leaked plans ahead of time. And they most often, we said they leak to a lot of people, but most often they leak to their peers. So it's interesting when the Violence Project looked at leakage more closely, they see it as it really does seem to be a cry for help or like one last ditch effort to see if anyone's paying attention to their pain. So it's it's not always the manifesto that we're thinking about that happens at the end, right? It's higher up in sort of that pathway we talked about of, I'm not trying to be controversial. I'm not trying to be morbid here. I'm trying to put myself on the radar of an adult or a friend that's really going to take me seriously. And that just does not happen enough. So I thought that was fascinating. The There's a National Intelligence Center that had a really good quote that I just wanted to add in here where they say, violent acts cannot be predicted, but analysis of multiple express stressors may help risk assessors determine when and how to intervene, address, and manage root causes of concerning behaviors, preventing some attacks. And I thought that was just a succinct way to say, you know, we we have all of this information and we've had it for decades. And then we have professional assessors like you, Scott, her doing this on a daily basis with the, the referrals that come across your desk. And I wish we could take all of this and predict and say, oh, these boys here yeah. are going to be the ones. Let's, let's snatch them up and intervene and get them all the resources. But it's not. It's when it comes to our attention, then an assessment has to be done. It's not it's not backwards. It's just kind of more in the moment rather than predictive. Right. And then there's the other issue of like, maybe we'll be able to take all this information at some point and be able to plot these outlier points on a graph where we can go, boom, this person has an 85% chance of becoming mm. This, 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 and this. But then the question is, well, what do you do with them? We talk about intervention, intervention, intervention. Well, what does that mean? How are you set up? Yeah. What agency is going to take it over? What is the school going to do with this person that's now been identified as someone that's dangerous? There's a whole other layer of stuff that we can't even start developing that protocol for until we have more hard numbers. And then who's going to fund it? Who's going to say what the protocol is? It's it's a big it's a big if. It's a big question. Yeah, I agree. So additionally, I think I just want to say one last thing is from everything I hear from all the experts, an anonymous reporting system is really key. With as much as we know about how often leakage happens, we need people to feel empowered and comfortable and safe reporting this. So a lot of states have started apps where you can, or even particular schools or school districts have started these apps where you can report anonymously. But I really think there needs to be a centralized 
system or everybody needs to get on board a centralized system. So, you know, always sounds so easy, but then it's like, who's going to answer these apps and who's going to do the assessments. It needs to be filtered accordingly to law enforcement, to mental health resources. But that seems to be another piece that we really need to get right to help with intervention and prevention. Whew, how are we feeling? So we have a, there, this leaves probably our listeners with a lot of questions. Hopefully it's been educational without being too dry or too horrific. I mean, I think most of our listeners kind of get what we're trying to do. There is a great article that we want to link to you in the Atlantic. Even if you're not a subscriber, the Atlantic is set up online so that you can get, I think, one or two free mm-hmm. articles a month. This is a great one because it's really addressing specifically about mass shooters and the fallout with the general public is that with the fear being that we become inured and immune and existentially hopeless that, well, nothing's ever going to be done. Nothing's ever going to happen. And so you just numb out and go watch Netflix for six hours. And look, I get it that that can happen, but I also know because of my many years on this planet that the pendulum does swing, but the pendulum only swings if there's enough weight to give it momentum. And the weight is people being aware and people being active and having conversations and voting. You know, voting is a big part of it. Using your vote to move this pendulum to get it swinging. And, you know, the recent school shootings, the recent Supreme Court things have people really feeling overwhelmed and hopeless. And I guess what I would say is that, like I explained to many people in my private practice, is that your feelings are real. Your feeling of a particular emotional state is absolutely objective truth. It is a number of chemicals spurting and traveling through your brain on the backs of electrical impulses. That feeling is real. It's not necessarily true. It is not necessarily representative of your efficacy and your advocacy in the world. You do have power. We have power as a group. We have power in numbers to instill change. So please try not to let it become so overwhelming. And and I'm right there with you. Let me tell you, over the last couple of months, I've had those moments too. And I have had to open up my toolbox and Mm -hmm. pull out every damn tool that I could get my hands on to tell myself it doesn't have to be this way. And we don't have to tolerate it being this way by just becoming more and more numb and checked out. So that's just what I wanted to add to the conversation here. At the yeah, end. I think I was a little worried about how diving into the research at this time, even though I felt like I really felt like it was our duty to do so and finally do this episode yeah, to get people absolutely. the data. But I was like, oh, okay, here I am going to immerse myself for hours in this stuff. But it actually had the opposite effect. And I hope it's the effect that people have after they listen to this episode is, okay, now I have some understanding. It's not just all the scary shit that I'm hearing on the media. Yes, I can look at this in a clinical way. I can think, oh my goodness, there are people out there doing the work where we know this is what can help and can be done and to help these kiddos, especially. And now what do I do with that? Like, how can I move forward with that? If, if you are going to put this into some sort of action. So yeah, mass shootings are increasing and the death count is getting higher and higher ever since 2007, which is counterintuitive. 
given the money and effort we've spent and developed in trying to deter attacks, but we have to do something different. And we hope this episode has given you the information to, again, think critically about the topic and then take that to contribute to conversations, to decide where you're going to donate your money or influence how you vote in the future, or just to further garner education and information about this and do some reading on your own. Go if if you have the time, if you have the ability, and you're you care about this, and you if you could do this, go run for a school board position. There school boards across this country need people like you who are informed and care about this and have a bigger understanding instead of it being boiled down to one hot button issue. You all understand that it's a lot more complex. So take action where you can put your dollars where you can, you know, your thoughts are wonderful, but thoughts alone don't really have a lot of power. But I'm saying that you don't, you don't have to radically change your lifestyle, but to be able to say when somebody says something really dumb and concrete about what we've been talking about, you can go, no, that's, that's actually not, that's not how it works at all. You know, pushing back against a false narrative has a great deal of power and all of you have that power. So with that, folks, thank you so much. This is going to be a long episode. I hope you're taking it in drips and drabs, taking a snack, getting hydrated while you're listening to us. And we are having a great time with episode number 100. Thanks for sticking with us through all of this over the last five years. And we are going to see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential, But in the meantime, we're going to leave you with this public service announcement from the Sandy Hook Promise. Thanks, folks. Take care. I'm here at the scene of tomorrow's shooting, where a 15-year-old will kill four children, two adults, and then turn the gun on himself. When the shooting starts happening tomorrow, first I'll probably just think it's firecrackers or a car backfiring or something. He told some of us that his dad kept a gun in his closet and he always talked about using it on, you know, the people that bullied him. Tomorrow, I'll probably say that I wish I told someone. You know, after the shooting, we're going to feel pretty bad about picking on him, but until then, we'll probably just keep doing it because he's pretty weird. Uh, Tomorrow, I'll probably point out that something has seemed off with him since the beginning of the school year. And I'm now joined by the officers who will be the first responders tomorrow. What additional details can you share with us? Well, someone is expected to tell us after the shooting that the shooter has been posting on social media about doing this for weeks. So how will you explain the shooting to your daughter? Actually, I won't get to explain it to her because she won't make it. This is Christine Lynn, reporting from the scene of another shooting. We'll say we never saw coming. sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Esri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. Please check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com.
la-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on Get Vocal entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential wherever you get your audio so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Confidential.